Good morning. Thank you for being here on this really, really cold morning, but it's uh, wonderfully warm in here. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. We, last week we looked at Luke's Gospel and the Lord's Prayer. Today we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel. So Matthew chapter 6, and we'll begin reading with verse 9. And as a recap, to remind you, uh, we're looking here at what we call the model prayer or the Lord's Prayer. And remember, the disciples never, we have no record that they ever asked Jesus to teach them to fish, even though he had a pretty good record with that. Uh, he, they never asked them, he never, they never asked Jesus to teach them to heal someone or to feed multitudes of people with a small lunch. They never asked Jesus to teach them how to cast out demons or how to raise the dead or how to preach to hundreds or even thousands of people at a time. But they did ask him to teach them how to pray. And again, they had seen the importance of it. They understood by living with Jesus uh, the value he had in that, what he gained from it. They understood it was the source, really, of much that they didn't quite fully understand. And as I said, they understood prayer. They were raised as Jews in, in the synagogue, and they memorized prayers and said prayers and prayed prayers. But this was something different. What Jesus was doing with the Father was something very different. And that's what they said, teach us, Lord. Teach us. We want to know how you do that. We want to know the power that comes from that. And I think it's really important for us to just meditate on that and marinate on that and realize that of all the things they could have asked Jesus to teach them, they wanted him to teach them how they should pray. And we said again, as we did last week, Jesus was a man of intense prayer and got a way to pray and had times to pray and, and just modeled for those disciples the importance of that. And if probably everything we do in a church, a corporate gathering, everything we do as, as the body of Christ, and probably a lot of what we do as individual Christians, prayer is primarily lacking in our lives. And there's nothing really about prayer, as Don Whitney said, that appeals to our flesh. Good music can appeal to our flesh. You know, if the chords are right, I think Vody Bauckham put on Facebook the other day, if the chords are right, the beat is good, and the, the melody is great, I can think I'm communing with God, and I'm just enjoying the song. Uh, we, you know, there is something about music that can appeal to our ears, our heart, our flesh, our memory, those kinds of things. There's something about preaching, even, uh, just public speaking, just someone who can hold your attention and, and, and put together a story or be a motivational speaker that appeals to part of us. There's something sometimes about church architecture that appeals to us, and certainly there's something about gathering with friends and people we know that appeal to us, but there's nothing about prayer that appeals to our flesh, and that's why I think at times it's so hard for us to battle through and make prayer an important part of our life. But also the adversary knows it's the source of all strength and power. John Piper says prayer is wartime communication, calling in help and assistance. So it's critically important. And just don't ever, ever lose sight of the fact that everything they could have asked Jesus to teach them in the New Testament, the only thing we have recorded that they asked to be taught 
was how to pray. And so he said, when you pray, pray like this, verse 9 of Matthew 6. Our Father, and we're gonna, we'll, we'll, we'll go over this a little bit more. Remember last week, our Father means not just the Father of everybody, but Jesus is speaking here about those who, who have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through the Son. Because we said last week, as we looked at it, he was talking to the, some of the Pharisees, and they didn't recognize who Jesus was, and they were saying, we, we worship God the Father. And Jesus, you don't worship the Father if you don't know me. So he's our Father through Jesus Christ, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, treasured uh, in our heart. We hold it pure. We hold it special. We set it aside. It means so much. Hallowed be your name. And then your kingdom come. And we said last week, nothing will stop the kingdom of God from coming. It's not as though it can be prevented. Your kingdom will come and his will will be done. But on earth as it is in heaven, and we talked extensively last week that on earth, oftentimes his will is done reluctantly <laughs> or because we have been, uh, uh, we've been crushed and we, we now realize we need to be obedient. We, we've been like Jonah. We've been swallowed by the fish out of our disobedience and in the belly of the fish, we agree maybe God knows something. But in heaven, his will is done instantly with great joy and no hesitation by the angels. So your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it already is doing in heaven. So that we would obey and follow his commands, not reluctantly and not not with with some degree of, of, of resistance, but with enthusiasm and joy from the very beginning. And then the verses we'll look at today. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Heavenly Father, as we again look at these familiar words, I just pray that you would remove the scales from our eyes, unclog our ears, that we can see them and hear them in all the power and truth that is there. Sometimes words like this become so familiar, we repeat them so often, we no longer really listen to them. And so, Lord, today, speak to our hearts as only you can, so that we can actually hear what you're saying to us in these powerful words. In Jesus' name, amen. Give us this day our daily bread. There's a, a, again, especially these two or three phrases I, I really have drawn from John Piper and what he says about the Lord's Prayer, also uh, Charles Spurgeon, John MacArthur, some great resources. And I've learned a lot from these men as I've read this over the last few days and weeks. And give us this day, our daily bread, is, is an indication that we are human and we have needs. And if we're going to carry out the will of God on earth as it is in heaven, if we're going to be part of this kingdom and we're going to respond to God's commands and, and what he is doing joyfully and, and be part of, of the movement of God, then we have, to, we have to live on this earth. We have to eat. We have to drink. We have to survive. We are still human on this earth. We still have daily needs as human beings. And the prayer acknowledges that. We have to eat. We have to sleep. We have to have a place to live. And so if we're going to be obedient, we're going to fulfill what God would do with us, then our needs have to be met. But look at what he says. Give us this day our daily bread. In other words, 
<laughs> if, if we have too much, if we have too much, too much and too much security, it is difficult for us to rely daily on God when we've got our, our barns built and our extra barns built and our extra storage. Here we're not to pray for bigger barns and for more grain than we could ever use so we wouldn't have to worry about it at night, which is how most of us pray. We, we don't want just what we need for today. We want what we need for today and tomorrow and next week and what happens if and what happens if and what will happen when this happens. And we want all of this. And here Jesus is saying, look, you have needs, but just pray for today's needs. And then you know what? Tomorrow, trust him for tomorrow. Why? Because how many times do we have to read that riches will often corrupt our heart to the love of Christ? It's not just once in a while in the scripture. In fact, if you want to look Together in, cha- in verse 6, chapter 6 rather, drop down to verse 19, very same chapter of Matthew. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and dust and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves Don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The young man came to Jesus and he was very wealthy and very influential and and very popular and very good, very righteous by any human standards. And he said, you're a good teacher. And what do I have to do to have eternal life? Looks like an easy conversion to me. Just whip out the four spiritual laws, have him say and pray the prayer and add him to the list. I'm sure he'd be ready to do that. Truthfully, I've often thought if the rich young ruler had come to me, he might have gone away thinking he was saved. That's a terrible thing. Because Jesus knew his heart. Jesus knew where his treasure was. It was in his wealth. And he said... You know the commands. And he said, I've done those. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Take everything, not some things, not 10%. Take everything you have and sell it, liquidate it. And he didn't say take it to the temple or give it to me. I'm not sure he would have done that, but at least that would have had some, he would have been, he could have felt good about it. But Jesus said, take everything you have and sell it and give it to who? To people who don't deserve it. Poor people. And in his day, Poor people were poor because of the decisions they'd made or their families made or because that was God's desire for them and they were being punished for something. And Take everything you have and sell it. Give it to the poor. He wanted eternal life. Jesus said, all right, here's the price. Your heart. I can't give you my heart. can't give you my treasure. Jesus, you'll never be my treasure. My treasure is my bank. My treasure is my house. My treasure is my gold. My treasure is the things I trusted. If I give you all of those, how am I going to eat tomorrow? If I give you all those, what's going to happen to my children? What's going to happen to my name? And the scripture says, he went away sad because what? He was very rich. Now, we often don't think of being sad and being very rich. You're going in the same phrase. you and I know, 
you take the seven or eight billion people that are on this planet, the hundred of us in this room are among the top two or three percent wealthiest people on the planet of all time. So I know you look around, you go, well, we're not rich. You know, we're just, we live here in Pleasant Hill. We're not rich. Okay. Maybe compared to some people in this metro area, you're not rich, but compared to the vast majority of people who've ever walked this planet and who are alive today, I'm with some of the richest people on the face of the earth right now, which is one of the reasons some of us find it so hard to concentrate on Christ and to focus on him and because rich, after that rich young man went away, the disciples are standing there like, you've got to be kidding me. We can take tax collectors, we can take prostitutes, but we can't take this rich young ruler. Well then, who can be saved? And Jesus said, it's harder for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to see the kingdom of God. In other words, it's pretty hard. He didn't say it was impossible. And obviously, Zacchaeus was rich, right? It's not long we we see the comparison I always did between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is rich, and and, and when he meets Jesus, his heart is changed. Without being asked to, he gives half of everything to the poor, and then he's going to make restitution four times for everything else he's done. His heart is changed. His money is now something he uses to bless people with. There's nothing wrong with having money if you use it for God's purposes and to bless people with, and he may give you more to bless more people. But for most of us, we really, in the deepest, darkest recesses of our heart, we don't want money necessarily. We wouldn't mind blessing a few people, sprinkling the love around a little bit, but we really want it because we're insecure about the future. And money and wealth makes us feel secure about the future. Got it all put away. Look, I'm talking... I put away money for retirement. I have insurance. I understand the world we, we live in. But I also know the stress we live in when we feel like we have to worry about what's going to happen in a few days, in a few weeks. And if you, we're followers of Jesus Christ. He will take care of us. We put our faith and our trust in him, not in your 401k. Talk to your great-grandparents about 1929. It can go away. So give us this day our daily bread. We do need things to survive on. That's a real human reality and God's aware of that and he'll give it to us. But but don't ask for more than you need and don't desire riches because riches are something that'll make it harder for you to love Christ. I mean, it's like like going to God and saying, God, you know, if you give me these things, my my affection's really gonna be weakened towards you and I'm gonna love these things, but give them to me anyway. And Jesus, and, and Jesus says later on in this chapter, you don't want to store up treasure here on earth. It will not last. It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to corrupt. It's going to die. People are going to steal it. It may seem really secure, but it isn't going to last. How many times in the two years since I've been here have I shared with you about going to auctions, right? After someone's died, an estate auction. You know, and the kids, the grandkids have picked through anything they really want. So what's left is sometimes the most valuable stuff that people own, not viable in terms of liquidating for money, but valuable in terms of things they collected, things they they cherished, things that were important to them. And the auction's about over, right? And people are leaving. 
And so the auctioneer puts a whole bunch of all these things that this person's collected their entire life that they thought were very important, puts them in a cardboard box and says, you know, a dollar? And somebody raises their hand and for a dollar take that's what you're that's what you're that's what a lot of your stuff is worth and you're not taking it with you to the cemetery somebody's hauling it off they're gonna sell it on ebay it doesn't last and what seems so vitally important and i'll tell you one thing i've learned as i've gotten older thank goodness i've begun to learn this a little bit I have begun, and if you're my age, most of us our age and older, we, we've kind of begun to realize, we've finally got it through our heads that really buying a lot of stuff doesn't really make us that happy. Uh, you know, just, it, it just doesn't. It just doesn't, it doesn't last. It doesn't sustain what makes us seem so joyful. Have you ever, have you ever watched a, a rerun of, of like, um, Let's make a deal from 1970, you know. When I was a kid, I'd come home from school or whatever, stay home sick and watch Let's Make a Deal when I was like 10 years old. And so they, on the game show channel, sometimes they replay them from the 1970s, right? So it's like door number one, door number two, door number three. What's the big deal of the day, you know? So they win the big deal of the day, right? And the door opens and they just go berserk. I mean, this, this husband and wife just can't believe this is, the, this is the dream of their dreams. They've won the big deal. They've got all this wonderful stuff. And what do they win? They win kitchen appliances in olive green. <laughs> they win a big, huge console TV with, that's, a, that's like as big as a car with a record player in it. But the screen's 27 inches. And it's a tube, and they might get four channels. Now, what good is that stuff today? We laugh at it. But when they wanted, it was going to be life-changing. Oh, come on. I mean, the, the, the value we put in things and the trust we put in things and, and, and those things cause our heart and our affection to go toward the things of this world. Don't store up treasure here on earth. It's worthless. It's not going to last. It'll go away. But if you store up treasure in heaven, it's there for all eternity. And who's your treasure in heaven? It's Christ. It's God. Have your joy in him. He can never be taken from you. Moth and rust, don't corrupt that. Thieves can't take him from you. He'll be there for all eternity. You have a home in heaven. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Don't worry about your house here on earth. I've built a room for you for all eternity. And I'm coming again and I'm going to bring you there. So just worry about today and your food. And if you've got extra, give it away. Be generous. But most of us, including myself, we don't want God just to take care of our daily needs. We just, we just want him to take care. We just like those bigger barns and lots of security so we don't have to worry about it. And I don't, I don't need to tell you, but I will anyway. You know, worry for a Christian is just simply saying, I don't believe you, God. I just don't believe you. How many times does he tell us to fear not? How many times does he tell us we don't have to worry? How many times does he tell us he'll never leave us or forsake us? And his grace will be sufficient for whatever tomorrow holds. And you and I don't know what tomorrow holds. But as the songwriter says, we do know who holds tomorrow. 
And he will not calm every storm, but he will bring peace to every sailor. And you can know that for sure. So he says in your prayer, just pray for your daily bread. Yes, you need to live and you need things, but don't find your joy and your peace in those things. It won't be there. Give us this day our daily bread. And this is where some words from John Piper really helped me with the next explanation here. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, some people are a little troubled that God, Jesus seems to conjoin those things where our forgiveness is based on us forgiving other people. Like we're earning our salvation. Like we're working for it. Like we have to do this in order for God to forgive us. Well, that's not consistent with the rest of the scripture. And I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. And I, I do, again, lean into what I've been reading and what I've been listening to and what I've been hearing and what I feel like the Holy Spirit's been saying to me. And I, I really think a, a, a great understanding of this does come from, from John Piper, just a great understanding of this. Look, when someone sins against us, when someone wrongs us, when someone hurts us, when someone hurts our children, when they hurts our family, I mean, it's such a normal thing to become angry about that and resentful about that. And then we feel like I can't forgive them because if, if I were to forgive them, then I wouldn't be happy. I wouldn't be fulfilled. It would be hard on me. If I were to forgive them, I would be risking something that they might hurt me again. If I were to forgive them, that would be a foolish act on my part. I would look foolish for forgiving someone who's hurt me so bad. What would people think if I did that? I would look like a pushover. My life matters. You can't do that to me. At the same time, we turn around to God and we say, oh, by the way, do everything I just said I wouldn't do. Because obviously, God, you're ignorant and you're dumb and you don't know any better. So you do what I won't do because I'm smart and I'm bright and I know what's best for me. And I'm not going to forgive these people because it's the best thing for me. But God, you're dumb and you're ignorant and you don't know what you're doing. So you go ahead and forgive me. That's exactly what we're saying when we do that. I'm not going to forgive anybody. I can't forgive that person. I'll forgive some people. I can't forgive that one. Look what they've done. Look how they've wronged me. Look, I, can't, I would be foolish. I would be stupid. I would be, I would, people would not think much of me. I would lose my self-respect. I can't do that. God, please forgive me. Go ahead and lose your self-respect because you're foolish and you don't know what you're doing. I know better, but I can't forgive. That's exactly what he's saying. It makes no sense. Daily, God forgives you. And takes your sin and moves it as far as the east is from the west and never remembers it again. And you have offended the holy God of the universe. And you have been told the wages of your sin is death and damnation and eternal punishment. And God, out of the love of his heart and out of his mercy, sent his son. And if we have trust and faith in him and repent of our sin, he forgives us of our sin and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And the reality of it is that if we don't fully grasp that, if we're not fully aware of the tremendous forgiveness we've been given, we'll be reluctant to forgive others. But converse is also true. If we realize how much God has forgiven us and is forgiving us and will forgive us for all eternity, we, can, we need to turn and model that, say, out of, out of the abundance of forgiven. Plus, if God is supreme, 
supreme and all-powerful and all-knowing and forgiving is the right thing. Listen, if forgiving is the right thing for God to do, then it's the right thing for me to do. How can it be wrong for God and right for me not to forgive? And at the end of the day, even secular psychologists will tell you the hatred and the bitterness in your life really doesn't hurt the people you want it to hurt. It just eats up at you. It robs you of your joy. There's no joy in that. So forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts, who are debtors. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, I go to Piper on this one. Very helpful. You mean God leads us into temptation? No. But I love this. This is so helpful to me. I hope it's helpful to you. Piper says that every experience we have, be it pleasure or be it pain, is a test from God or a temptation from the devil. Man, that's helpful. If I have a pleasurable experience, something good in life, it's a test from God. Am I going to use that to acknowledge the glory, the beauty, and the joy of God and how much he's given me and that all good things flow from him and I'm going to be more worshipful of him and glorify him more? I mean, to that regard, one of my favorite phrases from Piper has been for years that you can glorify God. One of the ways you can glorify God is is piping hot pizza and ice cold Diet Coke. I mean, when you eat that and you taste that combination, it's just delightful for those of us who've grown up with it. It is. And and so Piper's not, he's not being facetious here. He's saying, when you do that, do do you glorify God in that? Do you go, this is wonderful. And God, you gave me these taste buds. You gave me this opportunity to experience this. This is, I don't deserve, this is so, I mean, it seems small, but we enjoy that. Do you do that? Or do you begin to idolize the pleasure and want to overindulge in it and find the joy Look who's talking to you this morning. Find the joy in the food. If God blesses you with something and life is good, it's a test. Are you going to give him the glory and the honor and the praise? You're going to love him more. You're going to be joy him more. Or are you going to begin to idolize the pleasure and seek your joy in the pleasure, not in God who sent it? All right? It's a test. And Satan would tempt us with the pleasure to make it an idol. That's what he does. And when pain comes along, God's testing us. When the pain comes along, are we going to trust him anyway? As, as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, when they were getting ready to be thrown in the fiery furnace, and they said, our God will save us. But if not, he's still our God. Doesn't change a thing. God can heal my cancer, but if not... He's still my God. And one day he'll heal me in heaven. Doesn't change a thing. When pain and adversity comes, does it cause us to trust him more, be closer to him, drawn to him, or does the temptation cause us to, as Satan would have us tempted in that, to curse him? Where is he? He's not here. He doesn't work. Prayer doesn't work. None of this works. It's all a waste of time. So you see, the good things in life God tests us to see how we'll respond to those and Satan tempts us to respond the wrong way. 
Rather than to glorify God, to idolize the pleasure. The bad things in life, God tests us. Are we going to rely on him more and seek him more? Or, as Satan tempts us, are we going to reject God and be angry and lash out and lose our witness? And so I think what, obviously what Jesus is saying here is, in all of these life experiences that we're all going to have, protect us from the tempter who will seek to take these things and twist them to become something that becomes sin in our life. Does that make sense? Does to me. Really helps me understand that. So lead us not into temptation. Protect me from what the adversary wants to do with every, every activity of life. These are the test of God or temptation of Satan. But deliver us from evil. And we'll look at that next week. If you're here this morning and this is new to you and don't know Christ as your Savior, never repented of your sin, you may be a church member, you may have been baptized even as a child, but you don't have any daily faith in him, I pray that even this morning as we've shared these words of Jesus that your eyes will be open and you'll be drawn to him and you'll understand your sin and you'll repent of your sin and you'll call him Lord and you'll let somebody here at the church talk to you about that and we'll show you in God's word how these things are written so that you might know you have eternal life. But for most of us gathered on this cold Sunday morning, we're Christians. Many of us have been for years. Many of us could quote this prayer and have on many occasions. Some of us could sing it. (laughs) We know it quite well. But I pray this morning as you leave here today, you'll examine your heart. Am I truly happy with my daily bread? Or do I need more? Am I truly happy with just trusting Jesus day to day? Or do I need him to, I need something to make sure that whatever comes along, I don't even know about six months from now, I'm going to be covered. Can I just trust that when that comes along, I'm going to be covered? Can I trust him day to day? Ask him for my daily needs, trust him for my daily needs. And forgiveness. Can I every day spend time at the foot of the cross and look up at my Savior and realize he has forgiven me of all of my sin. Sin in my past, even the sin in my future. And he's wiped away my past. He not, listen, Jesus not only gave you a new future, he gave you a new past. Do you understand? It's not like he took the whiteboard and erased all your sin. He, threw, he burned the whiteboard and brought a new one in and there was never any sin on it. So we need to forgive others because of the abundance of what we've been forgiven. And if we find it hard to forgive others, two things is happening. We're not spending enough time at the foot of the cross or we've never been there in the first place. And then lead us not in temptation. Realize everything that happens in your life, good and bad, is an opportunity for God to test your heart toward him and for Satan to draw your heart away from him. So lead us that these things we do in life don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we'll look at the rest of that next week.